Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, unwanted pets and relatives, greetings and hello. It is I, your favorite obscure social studies teacher, with just above average looks, intelligence, and style, Mr. Palumbo, and this is the Professor Liberty Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, folks. Muchas gracias to all the faithful followers out there who wait with bated breath for a new episode to drop. I really appreciate you. This is going to get tens and tens of likes as the Allstate, isn't that Allstate? Mayhem, the guy from Mayhem, and he's like, this will get 10. Anyway, I'm all over the place, folks. I had a espresso this morning. I just got a little workout in, so the endorphins are up. So, boy, I am ready to go. Top of all that, we are going to talk about battleships today. So I'm totally geeking out. I'm a big battleship guy. But before all that, if you'd like to email the show, the email is ProfessorLiberty1776 at gmail.com. That's ProfessorLiberty1776 at gmail.com. Send me your attitudes, your altitudes, your alterations, your abbreviations. Send me whatever. Just make sure you send it to ProfessorLiberty1776 at gmail.com. Taxes and fees might apply. Just kidding. All right. So like I just said, like I just mentioned, today we're going to talk about battleships. That's right. Battleships. The coolest naval ship ever to be constructed. Sure, aircraft carriers are neat. Sure, submarines are cool, but come on, we all know there's something special about the dreadnought ships that came into being in the early 20th century, and they were mastered and perfected by the 1940s. Personally, I love battleships. I've been on two, I've been to two battleship museums. I've been to the Iowa which in Los Angeles, and I've been to the Missouri, which is in Hawaii, and I've been to both of those twice. I'd love to go to all the battleship museums. Heck, I'd even love to go to the Yamato Battleship Museum in Japan, where they have a huge model of the historic Japanese mega dreadnought. So today's episode is called The First and the Last Battleship, which interestingly enough, the country that built the first battleship is also the country that built the last, and that's Great Britain. Now this fact isn't really surprising, I guess especially since the British Empire's whole reason for existing, the whole reason we had the Pax Britannica, the whole reason we had things like Britannica rules the waves, there, there was a poem about that, is because Great Britain maintained one of the best navies in world history. Sure, the Royal Navy had to compete with other nations for maritime supremacy, but by the mid-18th century, so think 1750s, up to World War II, most historians would agree that the British Royal Navy, did you guys hear that? Navy, the British Royal Navy was supreme. Well, you don't maintain supremacy. You don't gain supremacy of anything by resting on your laurels. To maintain supremacy, you have to, you know, be one step ahead in regards to technology. And the British were good at remembering this concept, at least as far as the Navy is concerned. A buddy of mine who just retired from the Air Force used to tell me the same thing regarding air superiority. I remember asking him one time, why do we have to spend billions and billions of dollars on one aircraft, the F-22? 
or, or even the newer aircraft, the F-35. These cost billions of dollars for one aircraft. And he said the answer is simple, to maintain air superiority. Now, the name battleship comes from the term line of battle ship. This was originally meant a ship that is strong enough to fight in the line or the line of battle. Just like land battles, ships would, you know, form these scrimmage lines or these battle lines. And, you know, they would take turns firing at each other. However, in the beginning of the steel and steam age, these strong ships could fight in a line. So the term battleship was placed on many different types of warships. It wasn't until 1880 that the British Navy used the term battleship to mean something else, a recognizable type of heavily armored and armed ship. This is going to be a common theme throughout the podcast today. You know, as technology continued to advance, the different warships and their different names continued to take shape. For example, in the 19th century, there was no, there was no such thing as a battle cruiser. But by the time you get to the World War II, the World War II, by the time you get to World War II, we've got cruisers, heavy cruisers, battle cruisers, right? So that as the technology continues to advance, everything is fluid, especially between the Monitor Merrimack. Remember, those are the first ironclad ships. That was 1862. So between 1862 and the advent of the HMS Dreadnought, 1906, we'll talk about her a little later, naval ships were evolving fast and things were very fluid. And this rings true for all technology of the time. One thing I share with my students is if you look at the role of cavalry, for example, the role of the horse, the war horse, right? At the beginning of World War I, if you compare the cavalry and, and its role in war at the beginning of the war, and you compare the role of horses or cavalry to the end of the war, this encapsulates, in my opinion, just how fast things were changing, just how fast technology changed warfare. You know, the cavalry was a key component, a super weapon of warfare for thousands of years. And within four years, 1914 to 1918, the horse was essentially retired. Uh, the movie, the Steven Spielberg movie, War Horse, has many good scenes uh, that depict this change that I'm talking about. I mean, it's a pretty long war, uh, movie. It's kind of an epic, so it's kind of slow. It's a, it's a decent movie. But at the beginning of the war, the horse was this, like I said, eminent tool for charging and a symbol of uh, intimidation and power and speed. Uh, but by the end of the movie, the horse is relegated to a common beast of burden, moving artillery pieces through the mud, right? So anyway, back to the battleship. So as steam and steel overtook wood and sail, many Navy strategists were quick to come up with new and improved innovations that might give their Navy the upper hand. One such strategist was a British naval officer named Jackie Fisher. Though he wasn't the only Navy strategist to help usher in the modern naval era, Admiral John Jackie Fisher, his work reforming the Royal Navy, moving it away from wooden ships, is considered one of the major driving forces. In fact, one of his first acts as the first sea lord was to retire 90 warships, which he deemed too weak and too slow to fight. He's quoted as saying, 
these ships that he retired, he's quoting as calling them a miser horde of useless junk. <laughs> this action caused much controversy at the time, as you might imagine. The retirement of all those old ships did, however, free up money and manpower to focus on newer projects, like the all-big-gun ship idea. You see, all battleships after the HMS Dreadnought were considered legitimate or official battleships or dreadnoughts. That's how revolutionary Fisher's all-big-gun ship was. And every ship that was before the Dreadnought became pre-Dreadnought ships. So the Dreadnought is that, that linchpin or that, that cornerstone or whatever you want to say. The Dreadnought was the platform that changed everything. So what do we mean when we say all big gun ship? Well, before 1906, all nations followed a basic design for battleships. They had two main turrets, one towards the bow and one aft. And the turrets had two main guns. Most common, the caliber was 12 inches or 350 millimeter. After the ships, after that, the ships would have an array of smaller guns of various caliber circling the ship just below the main deck. Well, an all-big-gun ship is just like the name implies. It all has these large guns of the same caliber as the main armament, and originally there was going to be no secondary guns. Now, one of the reasons why they did this was, obviously firing was by line of sight. So the old pre-dreadnoughts with the mixed caliber, they couldn't tell which... So when the shell hit the water... Okay, so you're shooting at an object. When the shell hit the water, they didn't know which gun was hitting. Which gun, okay, did I miss with the smaller gun or did I miss with the bigger gun? So in their mind, let's just put all big guns on this ship and, uh, you know, we won't have to worry about which caliber is hitting, which gun is making its mark. Now, when researching for this podcast, a question in my mind came up, okay? Obviously, the original intention for all big gun ships, as I said was no secondary guns, but this obviously didn't last very long because you can look at a picture of the Amato. She was covered with all kinds of guns. If the Japanese had any free space on the Amato's deck, they put a gun there. So I don't know, you know, I wonder, you know, was the original intention not to have secondary guns? And then as, again, things evolved, you know, they put secondary guns. But I guess the first dreadnoughts were not supposed to have secondary guns. The main reason also for the big guns, so we talked about aiming and, and things like that. Another reason for the big guns was accuracy and uh, distance. Look, I mean, I love battleships, but basically they're just floating artillery pieces, right? If you look throughout history, battleships never really had those, those fights that we wanted them to have those major naval battles, right? They didn't really have those. They were mostly used to pummel somebody with artillery. I mean, if you look at Iwo Jima, for example, right? Battleships, you know, laid waste to the island before the Marines, in, you know, invaded or whatever. So the, the guns were there because they were accurate and they were getting more accurate for greater distances. This obviously makes secondary guns, smaller guns, kind of irrelevant, right? So anyway, that was the big idea. That was the overall idea for the all-big-gun ship. 
So with all that laid out, let's discuss the first official battleship, the first official dreadnought-type ship, the first official all-big-gun ship, and that was the HMS Dreadnought. The Dreadnought was launched in 1906, and it took an inc- only it only took an incredible 12 months to build. That's pretty impressive. It was propelled by steam turbines instead of a piston-driven engine, which was another one of her innovations that other ships would copy. The steam turbine gave the Dreadnought a lightning speed, at the time, of over 20 knots. The ship had 10 12-inch guns across five turrets and carried no secondary armament, as we already discussed. About the Dreadnought, the Encyclopedia Britannica writes, quote, The Dreadnought immediately made all preceding battleships obsolete. But by World War I, it was obsolescent itself. That's a cool word, obsolescent. Having been outclassed by faster, quote, super dreadnoughts, unquote, carrying bigger guns. The dreadnoughts' only notable engagement of the war was the ramming and sinking of a German U-boat near Pentland, Perth, Scotland, in March 1915. Placed in reserve in 1919, the ship was sold for scraps the following year and broken up in 1923, unquote. You know, that U-boat story is interesting. I had to look that up. I guess the dreadnought was constructed with this ramming bow. So when she collided with that U-boat, she literally sliced it in half. Pretty cool. But ironically, here's an all-big-gun ship not using her guns but ramming So we're going back to, like, the classical era with naval ships. One commentator described these new dreadnoughts of the 20th century. It's like a version of the iPhone. He said dreadnoughts were big, shiny, and probably were going to be superseded in a few years. But unlike the iPhone, you can blast your enemy into submission using a lot of explosives. I think this analogy is pretty cool. Because even today, one of the Navy's most effective roles is projecting power. Sure, it's an instrument of war. Sure, it can can cause lots of damage. But before all that, they're simply impressive and intimidating structures that can strike fear in the heart of any potential enemy. If you've ever seen an aircraft carrier docked out on the water... Still today, you're going to be like, wow, that is just amazing. It's, and they're super intimidating. And so are battleships. You know, when I visited these museums, these battleship museums, you know, you're, you're driving up to the ship and it's just an amazing, uh, it's a marvel of war technology. Uh, you know, they're literally the big stick that Teddy Roosevelt talked about when he said, you know, speak softly, but carry a big stick. Matter of fact... The battleship's Iowa, its nickname, was the Big Stick. Another part of the commentator's analogy is also true. Like the iPhone, battleships were superseded by bigger, newer ships very rapidly, right? So as soon as you get your new iPhone, the 14, then they're going to come out with the 15. They're going to come out with 15X. They're going to come out with the 16, right? And, you know, there's some new things on every phone. Mostly it's just the camera, but there's new innovations every phone, And this is what happened with battleships. As the Encyclopedia Britannica noted, 
Even the dreadnought herself, the HMS dreadnought, she made all ships before her obsolete, but she herself became obsolete by the end of World War I. I want to talk a little more about the battleship and its relevance in modern war here in a minute, but let's, uh, let's talk about the last dreadnought ever built, the last battleship. Uh, this was the HMS Vanguard. Construction of the Vanguard began in 1939, but it didn't finish until after World War II. Her displacement was 44,000 tons, and she had a main armament of eight 15-inch guns. Now, just for comparison, the HMS Dreadnought had a displacement of 18,000 tons. So basically, the Vanguard was double the size of her predecessor or the ancestor of all other Dreadnoughts. The Vanguard was the biggest, fastest battleship the Royal Navy ever built. But she would not serve in the war. Her 15-inch guns actually came from storage off of other ships which this seemed to be kind of a common practice with the British. You know, the HMS Dreadnought herself had guns from previous ships. I'm assuming this practice allowed the ships to be completed faster. The Vanguard was officially launched in 1944, and young Princess Elizabeth was there to christen the ship, and it was her first official public engagement. Well, unfortunately, like most battleships, the HMS Dreadnought didn't see much action World War II was over, her anti-aircraft guns were removed almost immediately and spread to other smaller ships. She took part in a royal tour of South Africa in 1947, but nothing much of note to share after that. By 1960, she was sold for scrapping. It was said that many thousand people came to say farewell to this mighty battleship, an icon of the British, you know, the symbol of British sea power. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the saddest part of this battleship story. Namely, the technology peaked too late. By the time the battleship was perfected, so think of ships like the USS Missouri, right? Or, or the HMS Vanguard. This is the pinnacle of battleship technology. By the time this was uh, achieved, we had the aircraft carrier. We had improved torpedoes. And this all made the battleship obsolete. It wouldn't matter how big or how many guns you put on this ship. All an enemy needed was a few well-placed torpedoes and some skilled bomber pilots, and the battleship would go down. It would be no more. For example, the perfect example of this is the Amato, the biggest battleship ever constructed. The Japanese took every rule in battleship building. They took the playbook, and they took every rule and everything they went to the max. The Yamato's displacement was 62,000 tons. She was almost 900 feet long. Her main guns, 18 inches, the biggest guns on any battleship. The guns were 70 feet long. This thing was a monster. Her guns could shoot a 3,000-pound projectile over 17 miles. And, and what happened? to this mega warship, this uber dreadnought? Well, after 12 bombs and seven torpedoes, she exploded in a huge mushroom cloud and sank within two hours of battle. Well, there you have it, folks, the first and last battleship. Too bad these marvels of naval technology weren't the big dogs that everyone wanted them to be. 
Thanks, Mr. Aircraft Carrier. Oh, fun fact, by the way, I wanted to let you guys know this. The last existing dreadnought, so we still have a dreadnought in existence, is the USS Texas, which is another battleship museum, which I think is close to Houston. I want to go there. The Texas also served in both world wars. Pretty cool stuff. You should go to their website and check it out. Uh, You can actually donate to the USS Texas. Uh, I know they're doing some renovations on that classic historic ship. Uh, With the risk of irritating a former colleague who is Irish, I thought we would end the show with Heart of Oak, which is the official song of the British Royal Navy. I hope you guys enjoy it. Here at Professor Liberty, we seek to educate, inspire, and restore. If you like this podcast, please go to Apple iTunes and give me a five-star rating. And even better, give me a written review that really helps circulate the podcast. If you want to see what uh, activities I have or lessons I have for your homeschool or classroom environment, go to TeachersPayTeachers.com and you can help financially support Professor Liberty. Until next time, go throughout the land and proclaim liberty. Liberty.